Hello, and welcome to the RCC Weekly Sermon Podcast. This week, Pastor Kenny taught from Luke chapter 5, verses 33 through 39, to prepare our hearts and appetites for Lent in anticipation of Easter. The big question is, what does it look like to hunger for God? Good morning, Remembrance Community Church. If you have your Bibles, please turn to Luke chapter 5. Uh, while you guys are turning to Luke chapter 5, I'll we'll catch you up with some context for this morning's passage. In Luke chapter 4, we see Jesus led into the wilderness. It says, Luke records, he hasn't eaten for 40 days and he was hungry. I always thought that was an interesting thing to add. Of course, he hasn't eaten for 40 days. You shouldn't have to say he was hungry. But of course, Luke is trying to remind us that Jesus is fully God, but he's also fully human. He was hungry, just like any human would be after not eating for 40 days. Jesus passes those tests and he begins his public ministry. He had lived 30 years and then around 30, he starts his public ministry, which is going to last three to three and a half years. Uh, And most of that begins in the area around the Sea of Galilee, uh, specifically an area called Capernaum. And that's not important, but what is important is that his ministry lasts for about three years. Uh, Luke 5 through 9 records the early part of this uh, ministry journey. And then and then it will move beyond that to the last week of his life, really, where he dies on the cross. But in the early part, the early phase of his ministry, which we're at right now, Jesus is very popular. Not everybody wants to kill him like at the end of his three-year ministry. Now, everybody's just trying to figure him out. And they all want a Messiah. All the Jews want a Messiah. They want things to get better. The religious groups, though, there's many of them. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Zealots, John the Baptist, the disciples. There's a lot of different tribes, just like today we have Baptists, we have uh, uh, Charismatic, we have Reform. We have different tribes, and they they all want, in their day, things to get better. They want the Messiah to come back, but the religious groups think he will join their tribe. It's kind of a human nature thing. We think we think when when God comes and does this big movement that He's going to done, be it revival or Reformation or or an awakening. We all, we all want to think he's going to do it through our tribe. And the Messiah will do great things through our movement is kind of the, the way that they seem to be thinking. John the Baptist started a little movement. The Pharisees had established a movement. The Zealots, one of those named Simon, will become uh, one of Jesus' disciples we'll see in a few weeks. Um, there's others, the Sadducees. But it's early in Jesus' ministry. No one is really trying, is plotting to kill Jesus. They're trying to figure him out and they're trying to integrate him into their tribe. That's why they're inviting him over to their house for dinner. And that's probably also why when, when, when they see that Jesus is hanging out with, with tax collectors and sinners, which we see earlier in Luke chapter five, he's hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. Why is he doing that? In, in a way, they're, they're thinking, why isn't he hanging out with our tribe? Why is he going outside of our tribe? That's not the way that we envision the Messiah to do things. 
but Jesus came to set free, set them free from all of that, from sin and shame. He, he brought with him the new covenant. He's not changing or abolishing the scriptures or the law, he said, but he's fulfilling it. As we will see, they want Jesus to come into their old way of life, their tribe, and cause it to flourish, to do great things through what they're already doing. They don't want to change their lives. They don't want to change tribes. They want God to bless their lives and their tribe. And in today's passage, they will ask Jesus why his disciples don't pray and fast like them. And Jesus will attempt to teach them some deeper spiritual truths. And here's what I hope we learn from this passage this morning. The first one is, I hope that you, you learn the answer to this, and it's a question. What are you hungry for? Sometimes it's good to ask, what am I desiring? What do I want? What are my goals? What am I hungry for? And we'll learn that fasting, according to Jesus, is designed to create a greater hunger for God. That's not how the Pharisees and the, and the, and the people in this passage are, 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 are approaching it. But even in the Old Testament, fasting should be something that creates a greater hunger for God. And the second thing is that if you keep doing the same old things in the same old ways, you will get the same old results. And the third thing is that Jesus is the best thing to hunger for. He's the point of fasting, is to hunger for him and to be satisfied by him because he is the one thing that truly satisfies our deepest hungers and thirsts. So let's dive in. Luke chapter 5, verse 33 through 39. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers, and those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guests fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them, then they will fast in those days. He also told them a parable. No one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins and it will spill and the skins will be ruined. No, New wine is put into fresh wineskins. And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new, because he says the old is better. So the first thing that we're going to look at in our notes is, what are you hungry for? What is the difference between experiencing true hunger and having a craving for something? Perhaps that's the best place to start. When we say, what are you hungry for? Let's differentiate. What's the difference between hunger and a craving? Just the other day, our fire crew, I work for the fire department now in Los Alamitos, and we were, we were driving around and we had just eaten lunch not that long ago, and we drove by yogurt land. And I have to confess, this is the thing that went through my brain. I looked at yogurt land, I hadn't had it in a while, and I thought, Man, I'm hungry for some yogurt. Is that true hunger? No, that's just a craving. I was craving yogurt. Can you remember 
the time when you were the hungriest you've ever been. I have to confess that hasn't happened to me very often, I don't think. I've had a lot of cravings, but I rarely get to the point of true what, what I would call hunger. I can remember one morning a few years ago when I was working in Santa Ana on the fire department and it was morning time and I was I was in the middle of cooking breakfast and oftentimes as a firefighter, uh, you're, you're doing something and then you, the bells go off and you gotta run out in a call. And So I was cooking breakfast, which the reason why I was cooking breakfast is because I hadn't eaten breakfast yet and I wanted to eat breakfast and I was in the middle of cooking breakfast and the bells went off. And we went out to this really large back uh, yard industrial fire and hadn't eaten breakfast and we were we were doing our job all morning long and before you know it we we're tired we'd been working hard sweating and it was 2 p.m and i was hungry that's one time when i can remember being sincerely hungry and i remember i was on kind of a diet at the time and was trying to eat healthy and i saw this uh, in and out burger truck uh, pull up and I ended up eating two double doubles <laughs> because I was hungry. Then they said to him, John's disciples fast often and say prayers. And those of the Pharisees do the same, but yours eat and drink. Jesus said to them, you can't make the wedding guest fast while the groom is with them, can you? But the time will come when the groom will be taken away from them. Then they will fast in those days. It seems that the, whoever's asking Jesus this question, it doesn't tell us who, it says they said to him. We know the him was Jesus. We don't know who the they was. But they're asking the wrong question. They're asking him, why don't your disciples fast? And Jesus' answer essentially is, I'm with them right now. If the purpose of fasting is to hunger for a deeper experience of the presence of God. And what Jesus is saying is, they're experiencing the presence of God right now. So why would they fast? It's a time to feast. It's a wedding feast. It's not a time to fast. But when I'm no longer with them, like I am now in the flesh, so close and and they're able to reach out and touch me, then they will fast. Why? Because they'll be hungry for my presence again. Now I'm present. One day they will be hungry for my presence, and then they will fast. When the Jewish uh, Old Testament Jewish fasting was for, it, what we see in the scriptures for really at least four different reasons. And the first one would be, it's a response to great loss or mourning. When you go through a great loss in the Old Testament, sometimes you'll see the people uh, fasting together. It's also associated with times of repentance. When people realized that they were far from the Lord, they had drifted away from God, they desired to get back on the path, get back on the path towards a thriving faith in with God. Repentance would be part of that pivot. They would be pivoting away from their, their sin and towards God in repentance. And fasting would be a part of that process. And initiated, it would be initiated when seeking to hear God's voice. 
I don't know if you've ever been trying to make a really big life decision. Well, you want to hear from God in those times. And so the people would, would often fast to, to help uh, get their, their ears attuned to, to listening better. And it was an expression of hopeful longing. At times they would, they would, they would fast in, as a longing for the future of all that God had promised to do. They were hungry for God. In all of these ways, we're drawing near to God. We're, 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 we're trying to use the, the idea of fasting as a hunger because we desire to be satisfied by the presence of God and nothing else. When they're mourning, they want God to visit them and comfort them in their mourning. And when they're, when they're, when they're, when they're drifted away from God, they want to pivot and return to God. And they, want, they, need, they know they need God's presence. They need a, a new hunger for this God. When they're trying to hear God's voice, of course, they, they want to draw near to God. And when they're thinking about the future hope, they would fast to remind themselves that we have a future hope and we long for it. The Pharisees, on the other hand, they fasted every Monday and Thursday, two times a week. They would fast. Jesus, at times in the Gospels, rebukes them because their fast had 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 become just really a public show. They would they would put a white powder ash on their face so they looked like they were pale and suffering during the fast, so that people would would look at them and and think that they were more spiritual. Their fast. Their fast was motivated by the wrong things. They also prayed every uh, day at noon, at 3, and at 6 p.m. religiously. Oftentimes, some of them would find themselves uh, at the right place at the right time. Right when it was time to pray, they, they would be around a crowd. And then they would make a spectacle of it and they would pray out loud. And Jesus rebuked them for that too, didn't he? said, when you pray, don't stand in, in a public place and make it all about you. They were praying and they were fasting for the wrong reasons. It was supposed to be to help draw them nearer to God. And yet they were really just doing it to, to look like they were spiritual, not, to, not to, to be truly spiritual, which is to be close to God. Jesus in this passage says that the purpose of prayer and fasting is to be is to better experience the presence of God. And so fasting still has value today if done for the right reasons. If we're going to fast, we should we should ask ourselves first, should we fast? Should we fast? And if we do fast, then why? And we may have a number of subcategories. The main theme though should be to better experience the presence of God. And when we're mourning, we could fast to better experience the presence of God. If you're trying to make a big decision, you could fast, but it's to better experience the presence of God. If you're going through a hard time and, 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 and you're struggling, you could fast, but it's to better experience the presence of God. In other words, we don't fast. Fasting isn't about what you give up. Fasting is about what you hope to gain. It might be better to phrase it when we fast, though. Because Jesus says, when I go, which is the, 
is, is the situation we find ourselves in. We don't have Jesus here in the flesh right now. He's, he's gone to, to heaven to prepare a place and he's promised to come back. So for us, we might fast or we should probably fast for the greater reward. That would be our motivation. To get to the heart of it a little more, let me ask this question. I already asked, can you remember the time when you were the most hungry physically in your life? Let me ask this now. When is the time when you have experienced the greatest spiritual hunger for God? Fasting is a time to disrupt our normal rhythms and develop a greater craving for God. To foster a greater thirst for God. To grow a deeper hunger for God. Because we desire the greater reward of God. The second thing in your notes is this, that you can't do the same old thing and expect a new result. Can you? And Jesus gives us a few great analogies. And the first one is the patch analogy. He says, no one tears a patch from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. Otherwise, not only will he tear the new, but also the piece from the new garment will not match the old. Imagine if you had a pair of jeans that had a big hole in the knee that you didn't pay extra for. <laughs> now we, we buy jeans with holes in them, but, but back in, in, in the day and back in most days, let's be honest, people didn't do that. When you had a hole in your jeans or your, your garment, you would want to patch it. And when you have a pair of jeans and you wash them, they shrink a little bit. And the next time you wash them, they shrink a little bit more. And eventually, they're all shrunk. And they don't shrink anymore. And then you get a hole in it. You get a hole in your, in your jeans that are pre-shrunk. And then what if you took a patch of jean material and it was new, it had never been shrunk before, and you, and, you, and you stitched it up to that hole? Well, what would happen when you washed it the next time? Well, the jeans wouldn't shrink, but the patch would. And so it would rip away from the jeans and that would be foolish. And that's what Jesus is, is getting at. You don't put a new patch on an old pair of jeans. To the first century Jews, what Jesus is getting at is, is, is probably this. Jesus didn't come to conform to their patterns of doing things. He came to reform those things. He came, he came to bring freedom from some of those things. He didn't come to abolish the law, but he did come to fulfill it. And the old, there was something broken about it. And Jesus isn't going to just patch it. He's gonna, you're, they're going to need something new. And Jesus didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The Jews were set in their religious ways. And Jesus w was not going to fit into the religious boxes that they had developed. And the application for us, you cannot add Jesus to your life like a patch. He also told a, uh, an analogy about a wineskins. He says, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the new wine will burst the skins. It will spill and the skins will be ruined. No, new wine is put into fresh wineskins. They would take the skins of goat of a goat and they would stitch it up so that so that it would contain water or or in this case 
It would contain wine and they would put grape juice and some other elements in this in this wine skin that they'd created out of goat skin and then they would stitch it up at the top or, or cap it somehow and it would go through the process of fermenting that's how you make wine in that process gas is created and the skin is expanded and the skin expands with a new wine skin and then the next time you use it it expands again and expands again and eventually it won't expand anymore it's all stretched out and then if you have an old wine skin and you put new wine in it and it expands it can't contain it it will burst and that's what jesus is using as an analogy and to the first century jews again jesus is teaching that his teachings will not fit in the religious wineskins that they had created. Jesus did not come to fit into the social wineskins they had created. And the application for us is that Jesus is not interested in, in being a casual enhancement to your life. You cannot keep your old life and try to fit Jesus in somehow. To follow Jesus is to leave your old life and to walk into new life. And lastly, in your notes, we see that Jesus is what's best. You ever wondered, what's better, new things or old things? Well, the answer is, there isn't really a definitive answer to that. Sometimes old things are better. Sometimes new things are better. Sometimes new technologies. Sometimes old things are corrupt and they need to be changed. And sometimes new things are distracting and, and, and less fulfilling and, and, and they're not as helpful as we think that they are. But Jesus is not getting at whether old things are good or new things are good. What he's trying to point out is that Jesus is what's best. And these, 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 these they that are asking him this question, they don't understand that yet. Jesus is best. And he says, And no one, after drinking old wine, wants the new because, he says, the old is better. I've always had a hard time understanding this passage because when it says the old is better, if, if the old is better, then, then I guess the, the Pharisees are right. I mean, if, if their ways are better, then Jesus' new way is not better. Is that what Jesus is teaching? Is that they're right? And Jesus should be corrected? No, it's not what Jesus is getting at with this passage. See, when it says the old is better, that's an old Jewish per, uh, pro, uh, proverb. The old is better. Often in, in their society, people would say that. The old is better. It was, a, it was kind of a catchphrase you might see in a t-shirt or a bumper sticker. Hashtag, the old is better. And what Jesus is saying is, you guys have tasted your own, your own old wine, and you're satisfied enough with that. And I'm bringing new wine. And you don't want any part of it. Because you're believing that the, your old ways are better. What they're failing to see is that Jesus is bringing something so much better. They shouldn't be asking, why aren't you doing what we're doing? They should be asking, why should we be doing what you're doing, Jesus? And how do we do it with you? Jesus uses it to point out why they are resistant to leaving everything 
and following Jesus. It's important that we hunger and thirst for God. When we say we hunger and thirst for God, what we're really saying is we're depending on God to be the thing that satisfies our deepest needs. We're putting our dependence on God. We're hungering and thirsting for God. You know, God has been, has been trying to help his people do this for forever, <laughs> since the beginning of time. One, one interesting parallel, uh, back in Deuteronomy, the book of Deuteronomy is Moses at the end of his 40 years in the wilderness. Um, the new generation is going to go into the promised land. They've come out of Egypt. They come out of Egypt, slavery in Egypt, through the parting of the sea. They were afraid to go in to the, the promised land right away because the people were too big. They had all these excuses. So they wandered, the whole generation wandered in the desert for 40 years in the wilderness. And now they're at the plains of Moab on one side of the Jordan River. They're going to cross the Jordan River. Joshua is going to be their leader. They're going to cross the Jordan River and they're going to, and they're going to, they're going to go take the, the, the promised land, the land of milk and honey, finally. And Moses gives a series of, uh, of last speeches before he'll pass away because he's not going to go in the promised land with them. Joshua will be leading them. Moses's farewell discourses are found in Deuteronomy. In Deuteronomy chapter 11, 8 through 12, Moses says, keep every command that God is giving you today so that you may have the strength to cross into and possess the land you are to inherit. And so that you may live long in the land the Lord swore to your fathers to give them and their descendants, a land flowing with milk and honey. You're going to go in, make sure you keep your eyes on the Lord and you obey the Lord. That's a, a pretty straightforward. And then in verse 10, he says, For the land you are entering to possess is not like the land of Egypt, from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated by, by hand as in a vegetable garden. But the land you are entering to possess is a land of mountains and valleys, watered by rain from the sky. It's a land the Lord your God cares for. He's always watching over it from the beginning to the end of the year. That's an interesting thing that Moses is saying to these people as they enter into the land. He's essentially saying the land is not going to be like the land of Egypt. If you know the geography of Egypt... They got, you have the, the Mediterranean Sea and then the Nile River runs down out of the Mediterranean Sea, always plenty of water. It runs right through Egypt and then into the Red Sea. Hashtag the, the Egyptians always had water. They never had to worry about water. And, 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 and Moses is reminding them, when you were in Egypt, you never had to worry about water. You would just like a, have your own garden and you would plant seeds and, and, and you could expect that a crop would grow out of it every time. That's why lots of times in the Bible, when there's famine throughout the land, where do people go? They go to Egypt. Joseph's brother, when it was a time of famine, they go to Egypt to get grain because they have water and grain is still growing in Egypt. When you're in Egypt, 
You don't have to worry about water. And, she, and God is saying to the Israelites, from now on, I'm taking you to a new land that is mountains and valleys. And where, where, do, they de, where do they depend on water from? From rain from the sky. They have to now completely depend on God to provide for them, to provide rain, to, to satisfy their thirst and their hunger. And the thing is, is that, that Moses is saying, this is going to be a good thing for you. Now, now, you're going to thirst and you're going to hunger and you're going to depend on God. You're going to hunger for God. You're going to thirst for God. You're going to, you're going to, you're going to depend on God. He will be your hope. He will be your trust. And this will be so much better for you. Remembrance Community Church, as we enter in to this new time, this new season of Lent, it is an opportunity to enter into this new season like Israel is entering into their new land, to, to leave our Egypts, to leave the things that we were depending on and to put all of our trust, to depend fully on God, when we fast, when we fast, whatever it is that you choose, if it's social media or if it's, or if, I, would, I would encourage you, don't, don't try to see how much you can suffer. That's not the point of fasting. It's, it's to think about maybe a few things that you, that you, that you normally crave and you, you, you try to satisfy yourself with, with some certain cravings that are normal for you. Fast from those. And put in their place a craving for God, a craving for the presence of God, to hear his voice, to experience. When we ask, what, when is the time in your life when you were the most spiritually hungry for God? Remembrance Community Church, I hope that we enter into this season and, 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 are, and are saying to ourselves, I want this season to be my, that time when I have a greatest hunger for the, for, for the spiritual, for the presence of God. I hope our hunger for God is, is, grows. I hope everything that we do in this season of Lent, we remember why we do what we do. We do it because we love the Lord and we want more of the Lord. And we're hungry for the Lord. Let's enter into this season hungry. Amen. Thank you for listening to Remembrance Community Church Podcast. You can find all our weekly sermons online at remembrancecommunity.org forward slash sermons. Thank you for listening.